0: Episode 37 Jack's Considerations for Good Bible Study, Part B. Rethinking the Bible with Jack Pelham. Welcome to Rethinking the Bible. This is an audio podcast where we apply reality based thinking to interpreting the Bible. Reality-Based Thinking is my name for a philosophy that seeks to make constant use of honesty, rationality, and responsibility in seeking out the reality of things while trying to avoid common errors. And for the record, I define reality as the state of things as they actually exist, as opposed to one's perceptions, beliefs, or wishes about them. And you should know, this is a serial podcast So it's best if you start from episode one and work your way forward from there, because we lay some foundational principles up front, and you'll be lost later if you skip them now. So here we are continuing with this lengthy discussion about uh, my considerations for good Bible study, and we simply cut it off where we were, and we're going to pick up right where we left off. So here we go. Number 23, Uh, the Protestant Bible has over 31,000 verses across 66 books, some of which are themselves comprised of more than one document. It has nearly three quarters of a million words. You can read it again and again your whole life, but you will never be finished studying it if you are the sort to want to understand everything in it as a completely Or as completely as the author understood it. Or further, as completely as God himself understood it. So, there's more material here than you could ever go through. Especially when you want to compare, well, let's look at everything the Bible says about Sheol. And then... Let's go look at what the extra biblical ancient Near Eastern book said about Sheol to see whether that expounds even further to see if it fills in any gaps for us and uh, regarding our questions and so forth. Uh, You are not going to live long enough to do that. And so what can we um, infer from this? You're going to have to make some decisions, some priorities, right? You're going to have to set uh, your priorities and figure out, well, uh, which should I study first and what's the most important? And again, you swim at your own risk when you do that. Number 24, if you are like most people, coming to an accurate and non-biased understanding of what a passage means will require that you keep shooing away the question, What does this mean to me? So that you can maintain a sufficient focus on what did the author mean? Mature people can get good at this, but only through constant self-discipline. If there is a bad habit in this country about Bible reading, it's got to be this one. You know, the Sunday school class. Okay, well, let's start with, you know, Matthew 5 verse blank, whatever verse. And Billy, will you please read that? And so Billy reads it, and (laughs) the teacher might ask, well, what does this mean? What does Jesus mean when he says this thing? And then I guarantee you, somebody's going to say, well, what it means to me is, but that's not the question, is it? And the distinction between what it means to me and what it meant to the man who said it is really quite rather obvious. And yet to a lot of people, it is not. They are that uh, careless in their thinking. They're that ham-fisted in their thinking and not deft at it. They don't make the fine distinctions. And you're going to have to constantly swat away, well, what this means, well, it sure sounds like, well, you know, I think they are... what does it matter, what you think? This goes back to the one of the first points I made in this list about it, it is not up to you to, well, the meaning of the Bible is not up to you. It is independent of you. The Bible means what it means, whether you get it or not, whether you care about it or not, whether you've read it or not, whether you understand what it means or not, it is what it is. It's not about you. And so the constant, normal, not so mature, cognitively human is infatuated with the question, what does it mean to me? What does it mean to me? And that is not the reason to come to the Bible imagine uh, living your life and dying and being taken by the angels to see God for that post-life appointment. And, um, you won't let God say anything. You're like, Oh, it's great to be up here. Oh, I see what you're wearing. Oh, I see a bunch of people over there. Oh, you know, this is fascinating. Oh, you know, (laughs) it's like, are you going to shut up and let God tell you what he has to say to you? And of course, you know, in that situation, I I think it's a bit of a fantasy what I just said, because I think people would probably be overwhelmed in the presence of God and not able to say all that stuff. Or maybe, and this is me speculating, of course. Uh, So what's the point? If you come to the Bible and you are not listening, then you... You're in the wrong place. It's not, what does this mean to me? It's, what did it mean? Number 25. The Bible is not written to you. No passage in it addresses you. God is not directly addressing you in it. Rather, its value for you is what you can learn from what was said and done and taught and believed all those centuries ago by people in a different time and place and situation. And from that, if you are wise, you can make some good decisions as to how to live your life today. If God wanted to write you a book today or to have somebody do that for him, he could certainly do that. What then can we learn from the fact that he has not? If the ancient writings are all he has given us, then doesn't it make sense that we should faithfully learn them so as to understand what God did when he was interacting with humankind in those earlier centuries? He gave us a book. It's about the book. It's about learning the story we are told and not trying to spin it into something we wish we were told instead. Number 27, the Bible was not written for you. You 25 was it was not written to you. And a lot of people can, okay, Jack, sure, I I get that. But they will go and, and some big time scholars say, but it was written for you. And again, I'm going to take issue with that. No, it wasn't. Had it been written for you, it would have been written originally in English, using language that is easily easily understood by you. And it would explain everything it mentions, knowing that we moderns are simply not familiar with everything that the authors and their audiences were discussing so long ago. It is not written for you. Indeed, if it had been written for you, it might make a lot more sense to say, well, what does this mean to me? Because, hey, it was written for me. Well, no. What did it mean to the original audience and to the person who wrote it and to God who wanted them to write it? Those are your questions. Number 27, the Bible may well have been preserved for you and delivered to your generation. So not written to you, not written for you, but preserved for you and delivered to you. Now we have no direct statement of Scripture to this effect, but it's certainly possible. And I like to think that God has had this happen deliberately, whether he had to do anything to make it happen or whether humans have preserved it and delivered it to our generation of their own volition. If this is God's will whether humans did it with his help or without, then what does that tell us about God's intentions for us? We were supposed to make use of these records, even though they were not written to us or for us. So we'd have to be able to decouple from our own thinking and experiences so as to learn about their thinking and experiences. And from there we could compare and decide how it all should be understood and applied. That's what I think is going on. I think we're supposed to be able to look at this book and all the documents that comprise it and to understand what's there best we can to to dig in so that we can understand more, study it so we can understand more. And we're supposed to be able to decide At our own risk, well, what should we do then? Here's what they did. Okay, what should we do? And is it obvious we should do the same as them? Was their situation different? And we've been discussing this in recent uh, episodes. Should we all wait in Jerusalem until the Holy Spirit comes on us in power? Or was that particular direction for somebody else in a particular time and situation? We can make those decisions. In fact, we do make those decisions. And I think that this presents a test for us. How will we handle the scriptures? How will we read it? What will we think is obviously a thing that we're supposed to do? And what will we think is n- just not intended for us? I think we do all of this at our own risk. God knows it, we should know it, it should be plain. Hmm, they had a widow's list. Should we do that? Hmm, they had a church. Should we have a church? They had apostles. Should we have apostles? All of these things are considerations that are rather obviously on the table, right? Number 28. Uh, There's nothing to keep us from getting any of this wrong. So we swim at our own risk. All the things we've talked about so far, we could be wrong about any of it. Uh, How we should apply a thing or what a passage meant. There's nothing to keep us from getting it wrong. If you don't like that, well, if it's not going to tell me exactly how to read it and interpret it, I'm not going to do it. Oh, well, okay. Well, the Bible is not for you then. If you can't roll up your sleeves and get your hands dirty and realize you're going to make some mistakes and you're going to learn that this or that was wrong and that you need to take another go at it, then this is not for you because this is, this is a work in progress, one's understanding of the Bible. Number 29, Many scholars have studied the Bible a great deal for a long time. They have learned very many things that are very useful to our consideration of the Bible. If you don't ever read what they wrote, well, good luck. You're not making use of the labors of other people. Uh, Number 30. A scholar's career, however, consists considerably of pointing out what other scholars have got wrong before them. There is no fail safe in being a scholar. Therefore, just because somebody studies the Bible full time, there's no guarantee that they won't get it wrong at certain points in their interpretation. And you've got to understand that. And with scholars that I listen to, uh, I learn a great deal from them. And from time to time, I see them making a mistake, committing a fallacy, making an unwarranted assumption or an unsupported assumption, or making an assumption that I know how to prove is false. It happens a lot. This is what humans are like. We don't always do our best mental work. You know, my big epiphany in 2012 or so after I began to study cognitive science for a few weeks, read a few books, was, uh-oh, I am most likely wrong about a great many things. Because I was reading and seeing how often people get this question wrong and that question wrong, and on and on and on it goes, and what, wait, wait, wait a minute, I must be doing this too. In fact. I've already shared with you, I got several of these uh, rationality kind of questions wrong, which was very disturbing, troubling. And so my early take on it was, I am most likely wrong about a great many things. And then after a couple of years, having discovered a lot of my fallacious thinking and my biased thinking and so forth, and having made a lot of corrections, I altered that statement slightly. And instead of "I'm most likely wrong about a great many things," I change it to "I am most likely wrong about many things," because I realize, well, hey, I have made some deliberate progress here, and I do uh, try to stay on it every day, so that I'm not making unwarranted assumptions and not being, um, you know, guided by my own biases. But I'm really giving everything the thought it deserves. So surely I've gotten better, but still it's it's likely many things that I'm still wrong about. And so if, if a Bible scholar is going to point out what's wrong with other scholars, but this still doesn't mean that he or she is impeccable in the thinking that they do, then what am I supposed to think about myself? And this is why... I really applaud the whole provisional idea. Well, look, this is what I think right now about this topic. And again, I've shared this before. An author friend of mine, I asked him about all his books. So how many of these do you still agree with? And he says, oh, all of them. (laughs) And I'm thinking, uh, that is not good. You've been writing how long? And you still agree with all of your previous positions Ouch. That's scary. Number 31. Good Bible study calls for the use of all three parts of the human mind. Uh, And of course, this is in the the tripartite model of the mind, which is championed by uh, Keith Stanovich and um, is it Kenneth West? I can't remember the first name, but Stanovich and West. And this model has the autonomous mind the algorithmic mind and the reflective mind, or to put it in other terms, the the autonomous autonomous mind is the fast thinking of Daniel Kahneman. It's the stuff that's already conditioned into us that we know instantly. Oh, squirrel! Right, you don't you don't have to stop and formulate the name of this animal. You just already know what it is the instant you see it. Uh, you know to run from the bear or not to run from the bear, however you're trained. This is trained into you, you know, to freeze or to, you know, whatever it is that you know to do. And so this is the fast, not thinking part. This is your conditioned responses to things, all right? And then there's the uh, algorithmic mind that Stanovich's term, um, Kahneman and others would call it uh, system two, which is the, on purpose, thinking, problem solving, deciding the orders of things, the priorities, deciding what will work, what won't work, foreseeing, and all that, and um, that's the algorithmic. And just think of algorithms and math that where you're have, having actually having to solve problems. And so that's the deliberate part. You have to do that stuff, and that is these are slow processes. These are not like you know milliseconds. Uh, evolving, These are things that I'm going to need a few minutes to figure out who to invite to the party and where they should all sit, right? So it's that kind of thing. The third part, which uh, doesn't appear in Kahneman's model, but does appear in Stanovich's model, is the reflective mind. Uh, this is certainly similar, probably has a lot of the same characteristics as what a lot of psychologists would call the executive function or the executive mind or something like this, uh, it's the decision maker inside of you uh, who would decide, for example, uh, I'm done thinking about this. Or no, 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 let's go back to number three. I'm, I'm not done thinking through number three. I need to examine that some more. It's your quality control manager. The way Stanovich puts it, it's the, uh, the engine that drives the thinking train. I'm not done thinking we're going to think a little farther or no, we're going to stop this right now. I'm satisfied. I have a good answer. And so uh, I'm convinced that good Bible study calls for the use of all three parts of the human mind. This is, of course, assuming the three-part model is the right one. Uh, And Stanovich's argument, by the way, is, look, if there's only two parts and that reflective mind doesn't exist, How do you explain the individual differences between people? Why doesn't everybody uh, all think and agree on everything the same way? And so there's got to be some third part. Well, I think he's on to something. And of course, to me, what that sounds like, this reflective mind, that sounds like the spirit of the person who is put into the body. The body has a brain. Um, the mind can operate in that brain. And when that body dies and that brain dies, the spirit is what goes back to God and faces judgment and gets uh, its eternal reward, whether it's good or bad. To me, that seems to fit. Am I right about that? Oh boy, I don't know. Um, God will hopefully let me know that someday. Right. But right now this is just me speculating best I can. Uh, trying to fill in patterns uh, best that I can. So I think the good Bible study calls for all of that. And that may be sort of radical. A lot of people may think, oh, no, bro, you just need to read it. In fact, you don't even really have to read it. Uh, The Spirit will just give you anyway what you need to know. I'm like, well, that would explain what a lot of people know, (laughs) which is so uh, ignorant and erroneous in so many ways that, oh, okay, well, this makes sense because you're not studying. You are just thinking whatever you want to think, whatever comes to mind and and so forth. Uh, Number 32, I think that this is God's plan for us all. And that if you're not studying the Bible and working the puzzle for yourself, that you're avoiding God's plan for you. He gave us a book. Books are to be read or to be listened to when somebody else reads them. That's how it works. If you're not reading or listening, then you're not exercising the plan. You can do an awful lot with church without reading or listening to the Bible. But, do I think the church is a fundamental part of the plan? Uh, no, actually, I don't. Oh, bro, well, you need accountability. Well, funny, Mr. Preacher. Who holds you accountable for how every week you will say that 1 Corinthians 16 verses 1 through 4 means that the church is commanded by the apostle, by God, to give money into the local church treasury. Who holds you accountable? You tell me that I've got to be a member of the church else I cannot be properly accountable. Well, how is it that you, being a member of a church, are not properly accountable? How is that? And who holds you accountable for you keep telling your congregation to pray that God will heal uh, Sister Bessie, and yet rarely does anybody get healed in those situations, particularly where Sister Bessie is 106 and you know has um, cancer and pneumonia and a broken hip. Who holds you accountable for continuing to put that out there when you know full well you can't take the elders over and pray for her and have her healed like James promised a couple thousand years ago? Who holds you accountable? It's easy for you to fuss at me who don't belong in a church congregation not a member of, and you can say, you need the accountability. And I can say, well, funny, you're not getting it. And you belong to a church. So this is another example of dumb junk, we say, when we get backed into a corner that really doesn't pan out if you think about it. And it comes back to this whole thing, are you really thinking? You know, like we talked about the Don Marquis quote. Uh, if you make people think they're thinking they will love you, but if you really make them think they will hate you. Okay. Well, are you really thinking in your church? If so, then how come you haven't figured out the incongruities between what time you say it is and what time it really is? I don't think you're thinking. I think you've cut it off. I think you are playing the thought stopper game where you stop these critical thoughts that come up that disprove some of what you say about what time it is. And you actually have taught yourselves not to think. And you call that faith when you do that. So uh, number 32, I think that this is God's plan for us all and that it That if you're not studying the Bible and working the puzzle for yourself, that you are avoiding God's plan for you. How come I can challenge the preacher or the elder or the teacher with a question that he cannot answer and yet he is not compelled? Wow. Jack, I have no idea. I've never even considered the question before. I'm totally blindsided by this. I'm going to need a while. I'm going to have to get back to you about this because I'm sorry, I have no answer and I'm starting from zero. How come I don't get that kind of response? Rather, it's very typical. You just get hand-waving responses, at which I've discussed before. Uh, in the particular case with the guy who says, well, that is... Um, He says in his closing prayer, uh, Lord, please help us to uh, discern between that which is merely interesting and that which is truly core, meaning of core importance, meaning worth actually discussing and not just hand-waving away, which is what he had done to my question. You see, and so there is this culture of not thinking it through not taking the challenge, not finding the answer. Listen, Jack, I'm going to go study that. Will you give me until next week to come up with an answer? Oh, you bet. We'll talk about it then. Understand that is very rare, very rare indeed. Uh, so, So many will have, well, who are you to challenge him or who are you to challenge me or... Well, I'm very troubled by your hardness of heart, Jack, or I can see you're independent. I can see you're not really open, you know, that you don't really want to be a Christian, whatever, all kind of ways to write it off and pretend it's something else. Then a question that they don't know how to answer. Number 33, you can find many churches who will try to save you from all of this. That is, who will promise to save you from having to do your own studying and thinking, and who will tell you what to believe and then reward you for believing it. And then they'll try to protect you from the Bible and from where it disagrees with their conventional thinking about things, with their easier version and their amended edited version of it all. They will try to step in and relieve this burden from you. But I think that God wants you to have that burden I think he put you here in this world on purpose where bad junk happens and people do stupid stuff and where you yourself make mistakes and where you hurt people and hopefully see the consequence of it and you can decide that you're going to repent and quit hurting people or not. I think that he put us here on purpose for us to learn and to grow and to choose. So imagine the church that steps in and says, oh, no, no need for any of that. Come on in. We have air conditioning. We have comfortable pews. We we preach nice, uplifting, positive sermons. None of that negative stuff about repentance and sin and error. No, we don't do that. Uh, you know, here at First Mindless, uh, you know, we really cherish our members and want you to Walk out feeling cherished and loved and supported and taken care of at all times. Well, okay then. So you've become the anti-conviction. You've become the anti-teacher. You've become the protector of ignorance. You've become the codifier of error. Where now it becomes part of your institutional routine. Well, I don't think that was God's plan ever for any fellowship that he ever initiated. And it's like you're trying to run interference. And this is why the churches are so filled with people where there are not that many people who are true followers of Jesus's teachings. You can fill a church with people who want something easier than Jesus. But good luck filling a building with people who want... Jesus and nothing but, who want the true Jesus. And so they'll try to protect you from your Bible. And that phrase, I, I love that phrase. And I, I heard that first from uh, Mike Heiser. And, you know, he says, and I totally agree, uh, people don't need to be protected from their Bibles. Let it say what it says. Let the weird parts be weird. Let's look at it. Let's Let's dig into it. Let's lay it out on the table and figure it out. Well, this is the very thing that so many churches will try to save their members from. And it's insane. So they don't know. You've been going there how many decades and you haven't yet figured out that that promise in James about the elders being able to heal the sick on demand does not work today. How can you not know this? How hard do you have to close your eyes to not see that? And once you recognize that fact and say, yeah, that's a fact. That is what time it seems to be. That does not work. We can test a test that it does not work. Well, once you've opened the door enough to admit that, then what else? What about your prophecy and visions that Daniel said would be sealed up by now. You still believe there's prophecy and visions going on? I bet you do, even if you say you don't. Most churches do leave that door open somewhat. And again, I've covered this before. They'll say, well, God, uh, we pray that you will help Brother Larry as he comes to preach the message today. Give him the words that we need to hear. Okay, you're asking for prophecy. Prophecy. You want God to put the words in the man's mouth. That is prophecy. Strangely, this will happen in churches even who will tell you, no, we don't believe prophecy is still going today. Well, if you don't believe that, why do you pray prayers like that? Well, we'll hear at First Mindless, we really don't think about things like that. That's why. I'm like, okay, well, I'm glad you see that. You don't think. And so how can you be a real Bible student and never figure these things out? That's people who think they're thinking but aren't really thinking. Because if you tell people these things that I'm saying, they will get mad normally. i wanted to slap that guy. Will you just hush? That's what happens. It's a typical emotional response to being called out that, no, you're not really thinking, not nearly like you think you are. And so they will step in and interfere, and they will give you an easier version where, no, you don't have to become a student of the Bible. You don't have to become anything like a scholar You don't have to crank up the reflective mind and the algorithmic mind, which takes so much mental energy. No, 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 you don't have to do that. Here, just listen to our little booklet on the positive promises of the Bible. where we just laid out, you know, we we cherry pick the stuff that makes you feel good. And we're not going to teach you the whole thing. That's what so many do. It is... Wicked. And yet, that's what time it is in our culture today. They think they know better than God. And they think that they know better than you, and they're quite willing to tell you all the answers. And then to ask you to hush if you challenge those answers too much or too often. That's the way it works. One big difference between me and so many others, and, you know, philosophical difference, is that I do believe we are all supposed to learn how to think and to do it well. And of course, here we are, 36 episodes into this being the biggest theme of this whole podcast. Starting with number one, God cares about how you think. And I think we're supposed to get good at it, to really actually learn something, to master some skills, to mature at it, to be able to do it well and reliably and regularly And so I would much rather have a fellowship of people who are saying, whoa, whoa, wait a minute, Jack. I hear what you just said there. That is like several steps removed from what I believe. So you're going to have to spell this out for me. I'm not saying I'm not going to consider it. I'm saying, would you please slow down and spell this out for me because I need the benefit of that kind of explanation. I totally respect that. But what do you get from the average churcher in the U.S.? Well, typically they go silent on you. And then you'll realize, oh, I've been unfriended on Facebook. Don't know when that happened. And you don't know why that happened. They just got offended over some opinion that you expressed with which they do not agree. And that's the last you're going to hear from them. Is that a fair exchange? Oh, no. Is it common? You betcha. Which phrase I've learned here in Montana. This is how they do it. You know the passage, see to it that no bitter root grows up to defile many. Oh, no, no, no. We're not going to see to that. We'll be bitter. We'll be quite justified in our minds of being bitter with you because you, sir, are a heretic. (laughs) and you ask questions we cannot answer and then when we cannot answer you point out that we can't answer and we don't like that you say we're not thinking here at First Mindless so am I being pointed about this well yeah is it serious oh I think so I think it's very serious was it not Jesus who said that people have to give an account for every careless word and deed? So, and you know, out of a man's heart come in, in his mind and all this come evil thoughts and all this other stuff. If, if it's not obvious to you that we are held accountable by how we manage our minds or our hearts in Bible language, same thing, by the way, Um uh, If it's not obvious to you that we're judged this way, you are so misunderstanding the Bible and you're off in some fantasy world probably taught to you by your church. So I don't hesitate to pick on, you know, first mindless or whatever, because a lot of churches are exactly that, patently so, by design. How is it that you don't share the same conviction as Jesus that people should learn to stop judging by mere appearances and make a sound judgment? Why don't you agree with Jesus that the people in your congregation should learn to come let us reason together and to give careful thought to their ways and each one should examine himself to see whether he's in the faith or not? How come these things are not important to to you? at your church. Because they sure seem to be important to God and the prophets and to Jesus and to his apostles and prophets who wrote the New Testament. So how come that didn't make it into your church? Well, you've got yourself a different culture and you've got yourself a different reason for being. And it's not the original one. You're doing something else. And you've changed the gospel into something it never was. You've twisted it. You've pretended to be different. It hasn't changed. But you pretend that people don't need to love God with all their heart and mind and soul and strength. But that mostly they just need to come to church and let you tell them what to believe. And this is why there are not robust conversations in the churches uh, very often about what things mean and what they must mean and what they cannot possibly mean. Yet these conversations should be the very core of our weekly existence as we try to live through this world while understanding what's in the Bible. Number 34, the Bible's difficult passages, including the weird ones, are where you can really learn something. You know, I've said it before, in science, when you uh, conduct an experiment, you should uh, put forth, um, or it's customary at least, to come forward with some sort of prediction of what you think is going to happen based on your understanding at the time before the experiment is done. So a prediction is in order. Well, when you get surprising results in science, this means, oh boy, we're really going to learn something here. We did not get the results we thought we would get. Yay, we're going to learn something. And yeah, okay, it means we've been wrong, uh, but we're going to learn something and, and get to set things straight now for the record. So this is very, very good. Even if it stings that we were wrong before, you see. Well, the same thing with the Bible. When you ignore the weird passages, I like the thing in First Corinthians, where is it eleven? And that's just me going from memory, but uh, that's okay. Uh, you can look it up. About the uh, women should wear. They should have their heads covered. And it's, it gives you a reason in the passage. And thousands of Christians can read this and not be able to tell you the reason that they just read out loud. It says, comma, because of the angels. Period. Well, that I don't know what that means. That's weird. Therefore, I quit thinking about it and on to the next verse. Right? Well, that's exactly the wrong thing to do. You have to think about it. That's weird. What is that talking about? If you track it down, you realize, ah, we had angels in Genesis 6 who were lusting after human women and intermarrying with them and having uh, giant offspring by them. And so here you have a reference. All those years later, apparently this was still likely to happen. And they needed to wear a sign of authority on their heads to show that they were indeed under authority and were not free for the taking. And this is God's way of marking the Christian women as unavailable to the rebel angels. Well, that's weird, bro. Yeah, isn't it? You really should look into that. No, no, I prefer a version that just doesn't have any weird stuff in it. Well, okay, good luck with that. In fact, it probably seems weird to you that God would send a book and not a feeling. Or that he would send a book and not your own personal angel. Or that he would send a book and not your own indwelling Holy Spirit, where what that does for you is uh, just sees to it that you never mess up and that you just automatically somehow come to the right conviction and understanding of every point that there is. That seems normal to you. That seems weird to me because I've studied the text. But if that's what you want, well, the Bible's not for you. This is such a huge problem. The weird passages are where you can really learn something. Okay, number 35. Uh, and this is I'm so excited to talk about this. Your rationality quotient your RQ, which is a test that's currently in development. I don't think it's been published yet. It measures a different set of mental skills than IQ test measures. The IQ is intelligence quotient, and that gives you some idea about the processing speed of your mental work. And so when you have an IQ score, uh, and what's supposed to be average uh, is 100, an IQ score of 100. So if you're above that, well, you're higher than average. And if you get certain high enough, oh, you're a genius, right? This sort of thing. Well, okay, but what is that? What is that measuring? Is this measuring your goodness, your morality? Oh, no. Well, is it measuring how honest and rational and responsible you are? No. Well, what's it measuring? It's measuring your processing speed. How fast at you are thinking at, at thinking through things? Well, okay, uh, you have a fire at your house and I have one at my house next door, same time, and I am able to run out of the house and save myself. You are a very fast runner and can run twice as fast as me, and you're able to save yourself too. Which one of us fares better? Well, neither one. We both were smart enough to run out of the house. We both cared enough to run out of the house. And we both ran out of the house. And that you ran faster out of your house than I did from mine. Well, what difference does that make? Well, in this particular story, none at all. Is this some game show where we're timed or where we're pitted against one another? Okay, well, maybe you're going to win for being able to run out of the game show house faster than I could run out. Okay, but we're not talking about the game show. We both can get away from the fire before we get killed. So do you understand what I'm saying here? The skills needed for rational thinking, thinking that deliberately jibes with the real world, that deliberately maps onto reality. Those skills can be done by people even when they don't have a high IQ. You know, um, Granny Lulu may not have been a reader. She may not have been a teacher. She may not have been a genius. Uh, But sometimes she's the one that knows the salesman at the door is a snake oil salesman who ought to be run off with a broom. Where the rest of the family is like, no, no, let's listen. Sometimes she knows. Sometimes she is picking up on the signals and realizes that this is not a good guy. Well, how did she know that? Sometimes she's the one who doesn't want to rush into some, oh, we need to buy a new tractor. No, we can fix the old one we've got. You know, sometimes she's the one who keeps people from making uh, rash decisions like that. Yeah, but she's no genius. She couldn't even read the manual for a new tractor, nor the old one. Okay, well then how has she learned to outthink you when it comes to certain matters of rationality? See, it's a different skill set. And she can use that skill set whether she is faster than you, or slower than you. This is critical to understand. Some people say, well, I'm just not the scholar sort. I'm not a strong reader. I'm slow. I really have to work to understand things. Like, well, if you got a love letter, are you going to read that even though you're not a strong reader? Well yeah, you bet I would. Mm-hmm. And are you going to work to understand what it means? Oh, yeah. Well, why? Well, I'd want to know. It's a love letter from somebody that I care about, right? Okay, then. Well, even if it takes you a week to feel like you understand the letter, are you still going to do it? Oh, yeah. I'd read that thing like every day. I'd keep it with me and read it off and throughout the day. Uh, Okay. Well, there you go. So you've got this Bible that I think that God had delivered to our generation so that we could understand what he did in the past. And to me, that's a really valuable set of documents. And I want to know what that means. I want to know what happened. I want to understand it best I can. I'm not an ancient Jew. Had I been an ancient Jew and been well-read, oh, I would understand way more about the Bible than I do now. But even so, it's been delivered to our generation, and I'm fascinated by it, and I want to know what it means. And this is why I think that what we make of our lives how we manage our hearts, our minds, is even more important than whether we get all the doctrines right. And I think the doctrines are very important. Don't get me wrong. But you cannot go with a corrupted mind and heart through all the thinking it takes to decide what is good doctrine and come out unscathed. You just can't. If you're the sort to cheat... Oh, you're going to cheat with your doctrines. If you're the sort to hand wave things and be irresponsible about them, oh, whatever, you know, that doesn't, that's not important. You're going to do that with your doctrines, you see. And so I think we don't have any reasonable choice but to see to it that we are making good judgments, that we're reasoning through things, that we're examining things and that we're being as responsible as we can, as rational as we can, about them. What other choice should we have? No, that's not important, bro. What really counts is just being at the church and being unified with everybody. Okay, unified on what set of facts? The easy version or the real version? You see, it's not as simple as some would like to think that it is. Lots of money gets made, lots of little careerlets get made. You know, well, I make forty thousand as a preacher, but at least it's mine. You know, it's my, my little domain, and the hubris of the people. He's not learning; he's just keeping you going. He's keeping that machine running, keeping those uh, pews filled best he can. It's not helping anybody grow much, but hey, he's doing it in the name of God. He gets to call himself preacher or evangelist or whatever pastor. He gets a title. He gets respect that comes with that from people. Uh, And those, those who don't respect him normally leave and don't keep fussing at him about it. So, hey, works out pretty good for him. That's the vanity of it. That's what so many churches do. It is vain. It is empty. And they're telling you, you can be okay and be empty at the same time. And I don't think God says that. I think he wants us to work the puzzle. And I think that God is the perfect judge. He will know what to do. If you die and you have an IQ of 60... and you got some things right and you got some things wrong and some of your behavior was great and some of it was terrible, I think God will know what to do. And, and I think he'll make the right decision about what should be your eternal reward. And I think if you have an IQ of 180, God will also know what to do with you. He will be able to weigh it all out. Remember, this is the God who said things like, uh, to him um, or from him to whom much has been given, much will be demanded. Does he know that you were given more in your IQ of 180 than was the person with an IQ of 60? Well, of course. Would he take that into consideration? Uh, Yeah, why not? So I am so not worried that, as a lot of people might be in hearing a talk like this, that, oh, that guy thinks you have to be smart to be saved. Uh, No. I don't think you have to have a certain IQ to make it to heaven. I think you have to have a certain um, standard for your own behavior. I think you have to care what kind of person you are. And I think you have to care how you treat other people. And I think you have to care about the mighty deeds of God. Studied by all who delight in them. If you don't study... I think you are trying to skip that part of the program. And it really shows what you don't care about and what you do care about. And I think that's where a lot of people are, and I think a lot of churches cater to that. Come on over here. We don't study here. We don't ask you to study here. We don't expect it from you. In fact, we'll even come up with reasons to help you feel good about not doing it whatever those reasons might be. And I think that that um, typifies a lot of the church corporations that are in business today. Of course, Jesus is the one who said that uh, you know wide is the gate that leads to destruction, and many will go through that, but narrow is the gate that leads to eternal life and only few enter it. And so these are the th- certainly not all of the things that ought to be considered with Bible study, but I would just to review say, look, are you coming to God when you study the Bible or do you expect somebody to come to you and just deliver it to you for your convenience? Are you going to go seek out after and find out what it meant to the men who wrote it and to God who inspired it? Or do you expect that it can just mean to you, whatever it means to you, and that's all there is to it, and that's all of how it ought to be. Because I, I think that latter one is really foolish, and yet it is very, very common. Because generations of Americans have been taught to think that very way. What does this mean to me? Well, who cares what it means to you? Who cares? So I suppose this has been a rather hard-hitting and incisive uh, talk today. And Well, okay, so be it, right? Uh, Certainly Jesus said harder things. John the Baptist said harder things to people. But um, I think that's what time it is. I think this is about each of us responding to God, whether we know we're getting tested in our lives here or not. You were put here on this planet. It's a pretty dark place in a lot of regards, although there are some fabulously wonderful things about it, including if you have somebody in your family that loves you or if you find a a mate who loves you and who is a righteous person who doesn't beat you or torture you or somehow make your life miserable through their um, character flaws. Uh, If you have anything like that, it's fantastic. The beauty of the world that we have to look at, uh, especially the natural part of it, not so much the uh, smoggy cities, but uh, it is fascinating to look at it, the order of things, how the animals are created, how they work, how our eyeballs work, all these things are utterly fascinating. And yet there is much, much evil in the world. And that evil comes from people, and here's a big surprise, who do not, delight in the works of God and who do not study them. And that evil comes from people who think they delight in them and who go to church but do not study them. So they think they're thinking, they think they're delighting, but they're not really. They've been sold a bill of goods. They've been sold a lie. They've been told that, oh yes, you are good Christians and disciples of Jesus. You're in his kingdom. When really, Jesus is the one who says stuff like, no, my sheep know my voice. And so these are the things I hope that you will consider. Um, That's all I have uh, in my notes today. I'm sure that's plenty. I have no idea how long this is. Again, I don't care too much, as you can tell. But um, I'm so glad to have the chance to talk through this at length. And I hope you found it edifying. Please do write me a line. Let me know what you're thinking. Let me know if you think I'm stupid or if you think this is brilliant and why didn't we talk about this before. Uh, I would really value that feedback. Uh, Please don't make the assumption that I know everything about what everybody's thinking because I don't. And it gets lonely uh, doing this and not knowing. Uh, Of course, I've already explained to you why I do this. Uh, It's because it's good for me and it'll help a few, even if not millions. So, um, but I sure would love to hear back from you. And with that, I will bring this episode to an end. And thanks for joining in.